Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to The Leadership List, Special Edition, a production of the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. Command recommended reading because great leaders never stop learning. I'm your host, George Maurer. Welcome. In this special edition, David Marquet returns. You may remember he joined me for episode two of The Leadership List, where he talked about his groundbreaking book titled Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders. And now he joins me to discuss his new book titled Leadership is Language, The Hidden Power of What You Say, and what you don't, which builds on the ideas in Turn the Ship Around. Welcome, David. Hey, George. Thanks for having me back on your show. You're my very first return guest, by the way. I'm honored (laughs) that you would join me again. It helps that I'm one of the first guests to begin with. And that tells me I didn't screw it up too badly the first time. So that's good. That's good. (laughs) I really enjoyed our last conversation, and I've really been looking forward to this interview. Really inspiring leadership information contained in your books. Just great. To quickly play catch up during the interview, during the previous interview, you introduced something called intent-based leadership. Using intent-based leadership, you took the nuclear submarine, the USS Santa Fe, from the worst in the fleet to the first. And this leadership style involves getting your team to stop asking, can I do something, and getting them to start saying, I intend to. Right. This book, Leadership is Language, lays out a strategy, a brand new playbook with six main plays to make that happen. Do I have it right? Yeah. So so the idea was, uh, uh, first of all, I don't want to sell, oversell the planning and the foresightful strategy of what happened. We were in desperate straits on the submarine uh, they the, the crew had a captain who was trained for a different ship, and I had a crew that was really good at being told what to do, but not so great at figuring out what needed to be done. And it was just by changing some of our words. I said, you know, stop asking permission. Don't say, here's what I want to do or request to do. Say, here's what I intend to do. Expose that to, for everyone uh, to react to. And if no one says no, do it. So the default condition now is Yes. The default now is you have permission, as opposed to, in most most organizations, the default condition is no. If you don't hear yes, the answer is no. Here, if you didn't hear no, the answer was yes. And exposing our thinking was really, 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 really key to this. We so so what happened is uh, it, we started uh, the book came out and. My mom bought a copy and then other people started buying it. And pretty soon I was flying all over the world helping organizations try to recreate this in their in their own organization. And as I was doing that, I kept going back to the language because uh, that's where it all started on the submarine. And I was troubled because I kept seeing people use um, le- unhelpful language. And language that just didn't fit the situation. For example, I went to a, a, um, an annual leadership conference for a tech 
company out in California. And I'm speaking at this event. And I realized they're calling it an all hands event. Now, why all hands? Well, it's an old naval thing from getting everyone on deck so we can all pull the anchor up because we needed you for your hands. It's a reason it's called all hands, not all heads or all hearts. And it just was happening in many different ways. And it struck me that there's something about the language we're using that's anchoring us to the past. And so what it started as this uh, sort of this don't say that, say this collection of how to change your language. But then the problem was you can't remember for, uh, a list of 40 things. Don't say it that way, say it this way. So there needed to be structure. And so we worked to try and uncover what we think the underlying structure behind the language is. I, I think this stuff is brilliant. I really do. I wish I would have known about it 30 years ago when I first became a leader. And before we get started, we have to set the table a little bit. First, let's clarify a couple of terms so our discussion makes sense. What is blue work and what is red work? Ah, so this was, this was the most fundamental pattern that we saw. As you go through your day, as you go through the year, and in fact, as you go through your life, you alternate between two different types of activities. Action-based activities, doing, production, making a presentation, getting on the phone, doing stuff, following a procedure, loading a torpedo, and reflective thinking, cognitive activities, brainstorming, being creative. And that we think one of the problems with many organizations is that these two actions are out of balance. And, and in general, people are overly weighted towards the doing. And so they'll do, 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 and then they'll realize that what they're doing is no longer relevant. The red work. Yeah, the red work. And we call this red work. Now, here's the key. Uh, the, the image is on an assembly line. That is classic red work, over and over repetitive tasks. But even if it, you're not on an assembly line, it's the doing part of your job. The key is red work typically benefits from a reduction of variability. If I'm doing manufacturing, if I'm doing a process, I want it to happen the same every time with as little variability as possible. I want compliance. Wearing a hard hat. I want everyone to wear their hard hat. I don't want variability in terms of how many people wear their hard hat. I always want it to be 100%. I don't want variability in how you wear your hard hat. Don't wear it back to front. Always wear it the same. Always use the strap if that's what we need to be doing. So red work benefits from reducing variability. Blue work, on the other hand, is the cognitive creative. Hey, what does everyone think? That, that, so that now I'm, I'm embracing variability. I'm emb embracing diversity. And the problem we saw over and over again, using red work language in a blue work context. So they would have a decision meeting where I'd hear words like, get everyone on board, build consensus. Well, what does that do? Building consensus means reducing outliers. And that's wrong. Consensus of ideas is not good. The more diverse, the more variable the ideas are, the stronger and more resilient your organization will be. Once 
the organization makes a commitment to a course of action, now we do want consensus. What we actually want is compliance. And so there's a rhythm. We're going to debate far and wide, but then when we commit, we're going to be super laser focused on the activity. And everyone, even the people who didn't think it was the best idea, are going to say, you know what, I can, I can do that. But there's, there's tools and techniques and methods because we need everybody. We need unity of effort. And one of them is to say, we're not going to do this for till the end of time. We're going to do it for a week. A, uh, a month, a year, whatever, and then we're going to pause and reevaluate. In other words, we're going to pre-plan our moment to go out of red work and we're going to step out and we're going to look back at ourselves and back at our activities and we're going to look and we're going to engage in contemplative, reflective, self-improving blue work. And this is the rhythm between red and blue because that the leaders need to manage because it requires two different sets of behaviors in two different languages. And you need to know. You see someone who's not wearing their hard hat, you don't say it's your choice. Like this is a this is a rule. Comply. Wear your hard hat. On the other hand, you go to a meeting where you're trying to make a decision uh, about how to build the building, what the next step is. Now you want multiple ideas. Now we're looking for a balance between blue work and red work. Right. Correct? Right. And uh the key isn't all red and or, nor all blue, but it's a balance. It's a, it's an oscillation between red and blue. So we, there are certain um, approaches now which are getting at this. For example, agile, uh, agile software development, which has a natural. Hey, we're going to do some. They call them sprints. So we're going to do some sprint planning. That's the blue work. What are we going to do? And then we commit. Then we're going to go into the work and and we're going to do it for two weeks. And then we're going to pause and we're going to reflect and how we're doing, and then we're going to go back into it. So there's this natural cycle between uh, red and blue. One of the keys is you need to make it easier uh, to go from red doing to blue, but you also need to make it easier to go from blue thinking back into red. And we've seen organizations that are overweighted on and individuals that are overweighted on one side or the other. The, the, the exiting red work so imagine this, okay, you, you got a team, they're in work, maybe they're actually on, a, on an assembly line or some sort of a production line. Even if it doesn't look like it, they probably feel like they're on some production line and they're doing the work and someone sees something that might not be right. Like the, either there could be a mistake in the process or something about the, something about the situation has changed. What we're making is no longer relevant. That person's got to make a decision. Do they raise their hand and say, time out, we got to think about this or not? There's a lot of institutional uh, pressure and burden to keep the production going. And interruptions to production are frowned upon. It's a, it's a very visible spreadsheet I, metric. I can measure when I stopped making widgets, and then for these eight minutes, I, I didn't make widgets, and that's, a, that's waste, that's cost. But what we get out of that, well, maybe these widgets aren't what we need to be making anymore, is often hard to measure for organizations. So uh, we've come through a long period of history shaped by the Industrial Revolution, which has put a huge burden on raising your hand and a lot of pressure to keep your head down and just keep doing what you're supposed to. And that's one of the things this book tries to address. One more thing we should touch upon before we begin. You say most questions leaders ask 
aren't really designed to get back honest answers. Yeah. How does language set up a culture where leaders ask genuine questions and get back genuine answers? Yeah, so there's two ways to think about it. You could start with your mindset or you could start with the words you use. Now, the mindset is when you hear something, you hear a suggestion from someone else and it just strikes you as wrong or a waste of time or a waste of resources. And you're trying to convince them, oh, you're wrong, let me teach you the right way. This comes from a mindset of you're right, they're wrong. And I suggest a better mindset is maybe they're right. Now, after the conversation, you can decide not to take the action that they're suggesting, but the initial mindset is what are they right? Now, the word way to do it is simply start your questions with how. Someone comes up to you and they say, well, I recommend delaying the product launch for two weeks. Why? So you start with, well, um, are you sure? So that's binary and it forces them into a, a very um, blunt response, yes or no, which I can't really be true because no one's sure at that point. So you say, how sure are you? And then you, and then you, and then some people say, well, why would you want to do that? And again, that's provocative. It sends a signal, you're wrong. And then you need to defend this position as opposed to how would that help? How does that help us? Or what's behind your thinking? Or how did you come up with that? Or what are you seeing that's result, resulting it? So start the question with what or how, how sure are you? How safe is it? Not, is it safe? Are you sure? Does, does Iraq have weapons of mass destruction? Yes. How about this? We're 52% sure they have weapons of mass destruction. Isn't that a different conversation? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Sorry. You see, I just fell into the trap myself. I asked you a leading, <laughs> and not only was it binary, but it was a leading question. Yes, it was. This is how hard it is. And and this is so, I'm glad, listeners, I'm so glad you got to experience that <laughs> because all day long I catch myself. Because um, this, this is another one. Uh, we good. You all right? Yes. Right, right, right. You good to go? Yeah. You have the tools you need? Uh-huh. You got the training? Everyone here has got the training they need, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Mindless head nods. So uh -huh. these language patterns are deeply embedded and it doesn't get, <laughs> and it doesn't get the most out of your people. Let's get started on the playbook. Leadership tip. Control the job. Don't let the job control you. The first play in the new playbook, control the clock, not obey the clock. And you've already talked about this a little bit. We sometimes get into an operating mode where we blindly work towards a goal, red work, performance mindset, without stopping to really think about the possible consequences of what we're doing. That's blue work, an improved mindset, a thinking mindset. Yeah. You use the example of a cargo ship called the El Faro yeah. as a warning against getting a job done at all costs. The captain of the El Faro was determined to get his cargo delivered, and there was a little hurricane in the way, but he was not going to let that slow him down. And the Al Faro ended up sinking due to bad decisions and communication between captain and crew. All hands were lost, if I remember correctly. Yeah. David, how might a pause have changed the fate of the Al Faro? Yeah, so this is a really sad story. This happened in 2015, and she is a 790-foot-long 
container ship. She's a big ship. She set sail from Jacksonville, Florida, heading for San Juan, Puerto Rico. Hurricane Joaquin, which ended up being the strongest hurricane that hit the Bahamas on record, uh, was forming up in the Atlantic. They approached their job is how do we deliver these goods to Puerto Rico? Not should we deliver them to Puerto Rico? So they, there was a level of decision-making on the ship, but not to the most fundamental level. It was, we're going to do it because we're a can-do organization. But why is, when we say that, here's another example, can-do. It's about the industrial age doing stuff. We don't call ourselves can-think organizations. I mean, it just sounds weird, but there's a reason for that. It's because the industrial age was about doing, getting everyone doing. Fortunately, we have a transcript of exactly what they said to each other on the bridge of that ship. And when you go through it, one thing stands out clear. The, the old industrial age play was obey the clock, keep doing the work, any pause, any interruption. And there's a couple opportunities. Crew members call the captain, but their language is very hesitant. It's self-deferential. It's ambiguous and it's ineffective. And 33 people died. It's tragic. I hope that we can learn from that example. Leadership tip. Let the doers be the deciders. Play number two, collaborate, not coerce. When in blue work, an improved mindset, thinking mode, so often we discuss things first and then decide. Yeah. Now you say this falsely gives us the sense of collaboration, but you say it's actually more like coercion. You believe we should get everyone's honest opinion up front and then talk out the issues. You call it diverging first. What is diverging first and why should we do it? As soon as someone says, hey, I think we should launch the product on time, especially if it's the the boss, then you anchor the group and you're making it not impossible, but just a little bit harder for someone who feels divergently, who thinks divergently to speak up. So Boeing, they have this rollout of the 787 and there's cardboard mock-ups in the plane. It's not really an airplane that can fly. And, and the CEO is standing up there saying, oh yeah, it's going to fly in a couple months. And it turned out it didn't fly for over three years. He was off by like a hundred, a thousand percent. And, and he said, well, how can that be? It's because when leadership is up there saying, well, we're making this statement, it's going to fly, it's going to fly, it's going to fly on this date. And then the engineers are saying, yeah, but the batteries aren't quite right and this isn't working and we haven't figured out this problem. They don't get heard. And then it isn't until the actual engineering failure happens that it, we're exposed. But the, the problem is we, we're not asking the question the right way. If we ask the, the, the team, you get a much different answer than the CEO says it's going to fly. You guys will make it happen. Anyone have an objection? So, so the point is ask the question. Y you as a leader what you want to do is understand what your team thinks. You need to learn. Everyone in the room needs to see what everyone in the room sees and know what everyone in the room knows. That's the key difference. 
The seven sins of questioning, which leads us to our next area. I don't think we need to necessarily dig into each of them, but we're, we're kind of getting back to a theme here. Questions that don't seek answers. For example, are you going to meet the deadline today? That's sin question number five, a binary question, yes or no. Don't bother me with the details, and the answer better be yes, by the way, or I'm going to ask you a why question, which is sin question number three, uh, which is more of an accusation than a question, which will put the person on the defensive and not really lead to any real communication. Are you going to meet the deadline today? No. Why not? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What are a few simple ways a leader can avoid the trap of asking sinful questions? Yeah, so I list a bunch of example bad bad questions. There are such a thing as bad questions. Uh, And really, it's your mindset. You want to have a mindset of curiosity. Don't we say don't be compelling, be curious. As soon as you start asking questions from the mindset of, I think I know the answer here. I just need to get people my way. Uh, You're probably going down the wrong path. Inviting dissent. It sounds like you're, you're just basically trying to drive a wedge between members of the team. You know, you're just, just looking for trouble, but rather than create disharmony, you say dissent creates energy. Explain what you mean. Yeah. So uh, all innovations start with a dissenting opinion. It's the first person who said, you know, I think we can fly. Yeah, I think we can digitize this stuff. I think we can store stuff in the clouds. It, it, it's a, everyone else is already doing it a different way. And, and if you never embrace those opinions, you're never going to hear that. You want, you want dissent in terms of what do we see? What is the truth is what you're trying to get to. Not what do I want the truth to be, but what is truth? What is reality? Uh, seeing different perspectives will help you get there faster. So everyone is linked with a common purpose, but what we think the existing situation is now, like on a submarine, we all know we're trying to live and defeat the enemy. So there's no question, there's no, we're not trying to drive a wedge in the team, but people will see different things. Some will say, oh, I think the enemy's to the north. No, they're to the west. Oh, what do you see? What do you, how do you, what do you see? What's behind what? And then, and because you want to get to the truth. One story I found very interesting, the story of the Toyota manufacturing line. And a little background first, Arthur Deming, total quality management guru, whose main idea could probably be summed up as take the time to do the job right the first time. And it saves you a lot of trouble in the the long run. He brought his ideas to the American automakers who were on top of the world at the time. And they told Deming to basically go away. So he took his ideas to Japan. And within a decade or so, they were making better cars than we were. Now, here's the part that really got my attention. At Toyota, the workers had lanterns and they would uh, they could light them by pulling a cord whenever a problem occurred they were in a red work environment a performance environment you've got to keep going no matter what and and i've worked on assembly lines before in a concrete factory it was tough work now 
when you stopped the line, you better have a good reason at this particular concrete factory. At Toyota, the thing that struck me, the first thing the supervisor does when arriving at an employee who just pulled the cord to light his lantern and stop the line, he would thank the employee. Hmm. Thank you for stopping the line. It's very different thinking than what we're used to. Hmm. What's the lesson here? It's not enough just to tell people, oh, you can speak up. Oh, everyone here is the, you, you can say no. Everyone here can raise their hand. Uh, everyone says that. And then 99% of people don't. The reason is you need to give them a mechanism. And, and this is what the andon cord does. So the Japanese word for lantern is andon. And these things are called andon cords. And it's the worker saying, look, I'm in production work. I'm in red work. I'm in doing mode. But there's a problem. We need to shift to thinking mode. When you're in doing mode, the stress of the clock pushes you out of your prefrontal cortex where you're going to do your cognitive problem solving. It, it's very difficult to do problem solving while you feel the pressure of the clock. You need to relieve that pressure. And the way you, and, and what Toyota, the genius of Toyota, was to give the workers a mechanism or a tool by which they could relieve the pressure, pull the cord. The supervisor comes over. He doesn't yell at them. He says, thank you, because you're going to give us an opportunity to make it better. Let's solve the problem. And if by, by the time... <laughs> That's not how my boss at the concrete factory handled it, by the way. Is, Just throwing it out there. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so 10 years later, they're make, they have the same fundamental problems that they had when you were there because they never took the time to solve the problems. Now, in some organizations, we say, oh, well, we don't need you, the worker, to tell us the problems. We'll observe you. So, so, so the, the, the way this matured was originally we divided people into the doers and the deciders in an industrial organization. One group of people walked around with clipboards behind the workers and took notes and then said, oh, we know how to improve the work. They, never they didn't need to talk to the workers because they knew better. Then Deming comes along and says, you know what? They're just as smart as we are, so we should, and they're closer to the work, so we should ask them. But Deming fell short of actually letting the workers make decisions about it. And uh, what I'm saying now is we need to go to the final step, which is you got to let the doers be the deciders. In other words, the people doing the work need to have a role in deciding how the work is done. This does not mean that we're always saying, oh, well, I could think we could do it better. We're going to commit to running the line for a month or whatever it is. And then we're going to take a half day off and we're going to have a set. Hey, what does everyone think? Hey, what are all our ideas? Can we run some experiments to see what works better? That kind of thing. But it comes from the people who are doing the work. It's facilitated and manifested by leadership because leadership is the one who has to say, it's okay to take a half day off. But if you never do that, you're never going to improve. In 10 years from now, you're going to be just at the same level that you are now. Leadership Tip. Commitment is a deeper motivator than compliance. Play number three. Commit, not comply. If during blue work, improve mindset, thinking mode, a doer has the opportunity to be heard, to have a voice and a choice on the way forward, 
they are much more likely to be committed during red work. The performance mindset, the doing of the job. What are some simple ways we can establish commitment from people rather than just simple compliance? And I'm, I'm just doing what I'm told. How do you get them to the next level? So the industrial age play of coercion results in compliance. It's the new play of collaboration, which results in commitment. When people collaborate, when they're part of the decision, okay, we are going to delay the launch we are, or we're going to launch on time. Now they're involved. And so what you get is commitment from within because they've chosen this course of action and they're committed. Now, commitment is good, but like all things taken to the extreme, commitment can work against us. You like the idea of breaking down a task into several smaller pieces. You recommend each piece have a blue work, red work, blue work, a thinking, doing, thinking structure. Basically, you think about what you're going to do, you do it, and then you think about what you just did. How does this help us avoid the mistake of staying committed to a bad course of action? So what I'm saying is we're going to balance this rhythm between doing and thinking. And a lot of times we see that there's a reticence to, to raise your hand, put a pause on the doing, and shift over to thinking. So if you're going to make it easier to go from doing to thinking, you also have to make it easier to go from thinking back to doing. The idea behind the next play, which is complete, is that you're not making a commitment to the end of time. We're not going to say forever we're going to do this process in a new way. All we're saying is we have an idea, a hypothesis is that if we change this, it's going to make things better. Let's do it for a month and then, then see how it works. That's a much easier commitment for people to make than this is it, and now we're going to label it as an initiative, which I would not use that word. Call it an experiment. This is not an initiative. It's going to be an experiment. We're going to, we're going to do this for a month, for a year, and we're going to see how, uh, how it works. When I was in the, uh, back in the Navy, the Department of Defense went through a, a change with how we were evaluating uh, civilians. And at the core of the thing, I think there were some good ideas and as part of the system, the people had to self-identify what their goals were and some things like that, and then how they and then reflect upon how they think they'd done. It was fairly complicated, and it was a wholesale upheaval to the existing process. This came down like a ton of bricks, and everyone had to go to this training. And everything changed, and there was such a massive revolt, it actually got rescinded, and we went back to the old way. Now, you're talking about the NSPS system, right? I think that's what it was, yeah, NSPS. GS to NSPS, right. To those who aren't involved with the government, it's uh, kind of a long story, but the GS system has grades, and the, the NSPS system had bands, sort of like ranks in the military. And the advantage, the supposed advantage of NSPS was that it gave supervisors the ability to give financial rewards to high performers. But like you said, David, it was complicated. And the complications undid much of the intended good. Sorry for interrupting, David. Please continue. Yeah. 
it was this heavy-handed initiative, and so people reacted negatively to it. Even though in my mind, the core of what w- was trying to be, and, and I didn't like the way it was handled either, but the there was intellectual rigor and value behind what was happening. Unfortunately, people's emotions got in the way. And, and instead, if we had run an experiment where we said, hey, we're going to like pick a part of it, um, like the, the, the way the evaluation looks, we're just going to do this, we're going to do it for a year, two years, and, we, and then we're going to collect feedback. So by the way, you are going to get a chance to get feedback after we give it a, a solid try. Uh, so, so that just makes it much, cause much easier to say, yeah, I can do that. And I know that my views will be heard. The couple of problems with the initiative is it feels very heavy. It feels very heavy handed and it feels like I'm not being listened to because it's already decided. So it doesn't make a difference how I feel about it. So none of those things help with the change process. So the idea of this is do an experiment, not an initiative and bound it for whatever long is appropriate. And then say, you need, you need the period to be long enough so that you have enough data points that, it, that you can decide how to change the initiative to the next step. But it's much easier to make a commitment that's small like that. You gotta make small, uh, you gotta make your, the, what you're asking the team to do, if that's the way you're gonna go, you gotta make it small. Leadership tip. Every completed task provides an opportunity for positive feedback. Moving on to play number four. If you have five credit cards, you're looking to pay them off. Financial planners recommend paying off the smaller accounts first. This helps give you a feeling of accomplishment as you go. You reference Aubrey Daniels in your book. And Daniels is considered the father of something called performance management, which explores the best ways to get people pointed in the right direction to be at their best. Daniel says positive feedback is a very powerful force for long-term behavior change, and it's most effective when applied immediately after completing a task or a change. Therefore, it makes sense to break down larger tasks into smaller pieces with more completion points, more opportunities for immediate positive feedback along the way. David, give me an example where you've seen this in action. Yeah, so more completions mean more celebrations. So let's say you're getting ready for the submarine to go on uh, deployment and there's two months for worth of activity and there are going to be several milestones within that two-month period including loading all your torpedoes loading all your missiles loading all your food passing an inspection Uh, there are two or three different inspections you have to do loading all your spare parts now if you just think about that as one long piece of work then there's just drudgery, drudgery, drudgery for two months. And then, hey, we're ready to go and let's go. And you're on to the next piece of work. Versus if you broke it up and said, okay, we're going to, hey, here are the milestones. We completed weapons loadout. Check. Let's pause and celebrate. It doesn't need to be a lot of time, but you do need to have a little acknowledgement that we've done something and we're a step closer. And that this lets the good feelings of that multiply 
And now we can go on to the next thing. So we need to feed this human psychological beast and we need to allow people to feel good about what they're doing. Otherwise, they'll stop doing it. This is also a way, according to your book, to improve workplace satisfaction overall, something you call observe and celebrate. You've already touched upon it. If you wanted to make your workplace a nicer place to work overall, this is exactly how you would go about it. Take a pause, enjoy a moment to rest and recharge, share appreciation for everyone's efforts, correct? Well, yeah, nicer, more satisfying from a deep satisfaction level. There's also science by Teresa Amabile from Harvard. Uh, her book's called The Progress Principle, and she has done studies which show that in workplaces where we pause and we, we acknowledge the progress that we're making, that we tend to get more progress. And when we have more progress we feel better about what we're doing. It sounds like you think it's a good idea to help people enjoy the journey. Yeah. There's science that shows that when you think about a, completing a task in terms of a journey as opposed to a goal, that it's, it's better. It's better in a couple of ways. One is you'll probably keep doing it. And uh, in the book, I talk about this, uh, the game, the Weight Watchers, uh, what's it called? Biggest Losers. And... Uh, this is, it turns out that most of those people in one study, all of them but one, gained the weight back. Several of them were even heavier than when it started. What's, it's sad, why? Because you're, they're looking at it, they, the, sh the sh producers of the show, create this thing where it's a focus on the goal, whatever the final weigh-in is, and it's this number. We're not focusing on the, activities and the behaviors that are going to get us there or the environment that we put ourselves in that allow those activities and behaviors to happen more naturally. As a result, as soon as the goal is passed, whether I made it or not, doesn't matter. I go back to my old behaviors and I gain the weight back. Now it's more weight, weight control is more complicated than that. But in terms of behaviors and habits, it's not more complicated than that. Leadership tip, keep the right and eliminate the wrong. Play number five, improve, not prove. So many of us spend a great deal of time trying to prove to others that we're good enough. Right. This mindset can lead us into a trap. If, if we're working on a project that has problems, we may focus our efforts on proving it's a good project. Therefore, proving we're good enough. Right. You just continue in red work, performance mindset, rather than pausing and entering a blue work phase where you think about what you're doing. You use the example of the Disney film titled Frozen as an example. What did Disney do correctly when early versions of Frozen were not scoring well with audiences? Well, what they did was the, the producer called a timeout. So he's controlling the clock rather than obeying the clock. They had a tight deadline. And everyone is feeling the pressure of the clock. It's timeout. Let's, let's rethink this. Then the, they got the people involved in, in producing the movie 
to come up with new ideas. This was cognitively very difficult because these were the same people who decided to go the route that they had gone. So basically we're asking them to criticize what they had done before. Now, this is a very difficult thing for a lot of people in a lot of teams. And they'll say things like, well, everyone tried their best and given what we had and, and Johnny over there really did a good job, but blah, blah, blah. Why do people say those things? They say them because we have two selves. One is the be good self. And this is the self that wants to protect our image of ourselves in the world as a competent, valuable, worthwhile person who deserves the salary and the recognition that I get. And this has a very strong pull. And when I get put under stress, when I'm uh, scared, this self comes to the forefront and I get defensive and I reject feedback. But the other self is in the long run more powerful. This is what I call the, the get better self. The get better self is a seeking, curious, improving, learning self that gets excited about something new. So when there's two, when you get to a, pa- a, a division point and there's two paths, one's the well-worn path that I've done a hundred times. I know I can do that. The be good self wants to go down that path, do it and then say, look, I've, I've done it once again. The other path has some unknowns. The other path has a chance for more learning and more exploration. The get better self says, oh, that might be interesting. That might be really something different. I could learn something there. I will experience new things. And I'm, I'm going to push for going down that path. In the long run, you got to tame the be good self in order to allow the get better self to come to the forefront, not just for you, but for your team. That will allow you to live a more interesting, diverse, and in my mind, fulfilling life in the, in the long run. You call this the improve play. And you say we can only deploy the improve play once. Why only once? Well, we, only, we, we don't want to deploy it continuously. We want to deploy it incrementally. Uh, I, I, I don't like the term continuous improvement because that, that means continuous interference with, with the process. What you want to do is run the process for a while and then pause and then think back and do the improved play and then run the pro- then solidify the process, run it for a while, pause, improve. So it's more like stair steps, not uh, like a ramp. Leadership tip. Needing permission paralyzes action. Play number six, connect, not conform. Here's where you ask one of the most profound questions I've heard in a long time. The oil rig deep water horizon. And I'm going to try to keep this uh, as simple as possible. When oil comes rushing out of a well uncontrollably, it's extremely dangerous. No secret there. Now, what happened to the Deepwater Horizon? The gushing oil caught fire. And think of a gigantic fire hose spraying gasoline that's burning. Now, there's an operator who has a button called an Emergency Disconnect System, or EDS, which cuts off the oil flow. 
but they're not allowed to push the button until they get permission first. Now, here's the profound question. And I ask you, David, how is it possible for a person to be more afraid of pushing a button without permission than dying in a fiery explosion? Yeah, so everyone's familiar with Deepwater Horizon, the oil well in the Gulf of Mexico that ignited. Several people lost their lives. Millions of gallons of oil ended up getting spilled into the Gulf. And uh, from, again, from the transcript, uh, from, from the interviews of, of the people who were there, there's a moment when the engineer is standing in front of the switch. He, he's got to press this button. He doesn't press it. He's about to. And someone says, you can't press it without permission. And, and then someone, on the, someone says, yeah, you have permission. And then someone else says, no, 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 that's not enough. It needs to come from the OIM, uh, onshore installation man- manager. In other words, someone who's not even on the installation, a more senior executive back at headquarters. And at this point, the, the, the platform has been in flames. This is like a 100-foot-tall fireball for nine minutes. And the question is, and the, the answer is, it's because our human instincts, they're being corrupted by the environment that we're in. They're designed for running away from a lion in the woods or sensing fear, uh, understanding that these berries are poisonous and these berries are not. And for t- hundreds of thousands of years, that's what our instincts were designed for. And what's happened now is the fear of hierarchy has been is replacing the fear of eating the poisonous berries. Because from a social perspective, hierarchy replaces the tribe and you don't want to upset the tribe because then you get kicked out and then you die. So our, our, our systems are wired for a different environment and they're mis, misapplying uh, their wiring to the current situation. And so I have two fears. I have violate hierarchy or irritate hierarchy, which which my my brain is processing it that like that's gonna violate the tribe. I have the potential to get kicked out. That that can result in death. Or I can stop the fire, which is also resulting in death. So it's not like fire versus admin. It's death versus death. And this is one of the key things in, in all industrial accidents. It always comes up. And the problem is we can, we can mitigate against this. We can inoculate ourselves, but not with the playbook that we have, not with the language that we're using. David Marquet, author of Leadership is Language, The Hidden Power of What You Say and What You Don't. As always, we just skim the surface here, only so much that we can cover, and there is great added value in reading the book for yourself. I highly recommend a deep dive. Great stuff, David. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, George, and thanks all your listeners for what you guys do. Take care. And thank you for listening to The Leadership List. Special Edition, a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer, and remember, great leaders never stop learning. Until next time. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. 
creative consultants, Dave Biesing, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott. Oh, 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 oh,